a story of an individual that was healed, a crippled man that was healed in Jesus' ministry. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now in a long time, in that case he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not or knew not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now I want you to notice in chapter 5, verse 6, it says that Jesus posed a question to the man. Only only um, thing that Jesus really said to him at this point in time, or at least the first thing that he said to him at this uh, uh, certain event, healing occurrence. And notice that Jesus is looking for faith. Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? We've made uh, reference many times over the years to the fact that there are 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Now some are recounted uh, in several different gospel accounts. Some of the ones in Matthew are also in Mark or in Luke or some in John too, is what I mean. And so it might seem like there are more. And that certainly doesn't cover the cases where it says that multitudes were healed or groups were, uh, were healed. But individuals... Specific individuals in Jesus' ministry. There are 19 individual cases. Now, John said if everything Jesus said and was written, everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. So that says to me there had to be a lot more people healed, a lot more individual cases of healing than what we have record of. But how many is the Holy Ghost going to give us to show us? I'm of the opinion that the 19 that he did reveal to us give us a complete and total picture so that we can understand Jesus' healing ministry here on the earth. And of those 19 individual cases of healing, 75% of them identify the faith of the individual specifically, or you can see the faith in action. It may not be called out, but you can see it in action. So Jesus, in the experience or example of his earthly ministry that the Holy Ghost left us a record of. Again, I have to believe that the Holy Ghost gave us a complete picture through the 19 cases that he shows us. Of those 19 individuals, individual cases, 75% of the people that were healed were healed on their own faith. 
And it seems that that's the, the, the pattern that Jesus is expecting. We would certainly have to say that if 75% of the individual cases of healing were based on the, fa the faith of the individual, we would certainly recognize that if that is representative, and if it's not representative, why did the Holy Ghost give us these? So if that's representative of the way Jesus ministered healing or the way that people received their healing in Jesus' ministry, then we should recognize the place of importance that faith plays in receiving healing for the physical body. And Jesus looks for it first and foremost. Five porches full of sick folks. Now, I don't know how many people that would be, but you would imagine that these five porches, which uh, church tradition tells us, and there's some historical evidence to back it up, but I don't know if it's enough to be uh, completely sure about this. But anyway, the story is that some rich person, knowing that this was a place where people would go day after day after day waiting for the troubling of the water so that they could try to get healed, try to be the first one in and get healed, that he developed or built or created these five porches, these sheds or, or shade structures of some type, so that the people would be able to, to wait for the angel to come down and, and trouble the water in as much comfort as they could possibly get. And so when Jesus walks into this place, the Pool of Bethesda, near to the sheep market in Jerusalem, there are a number of people. I don't know. What would you think? What would you estimate? When you think of the shade structures of the, the, uh, pool of, uh, at the Pool of Bethesda, I think that each one's going to be big enough for maybe a dozen people. I could be way off on that. But if it was a dozen people, then we would have to conclude that there's about 60 people present at this time. But there could have been 600 people. It's all a matter of what we think based on little or no knowledge whatsoever. So whatever number of people there were, we know there were other people there. Because when Jesus asked the man, will you be made whole? The man first starts telling Jesus about what he doesn't have. He says, I don't have help. If I had help, then I could get to the water first before somebody else. Now, folks, again, my thinking is a little, uh, well, unfounded, unbased, unbiased, or unfounded. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. But I imagine this thing kind of like a swimming pool. And if I'm sick, and especially if I've been sick for a long time, I'm laying on the edge. So that any ripple, any movement in the water whatsoever, I'll just roll in. But apparently that's not the way that this thing worked. Certainly through experience, people had identified that the first one in got, gets healed from whatever sickness or disease they have. The only way they'd know that is if the second one didn't get anything. And so they've identified that God sovereignly, just as an act of mercy, sends an angel to trouble the water to bring somebody their healing. Now, we don't know how often it was. If, if it was some kind of schedule, then the Bible would tell us on the third Tuesday of each month, an angel would come down and trouble the water. But nobody knows when. And so this guy answers Jesus in his search for faith. Will you be made whole? Notice he's saying it in such a way that the man is the one that decides. Will you be made whole? He's simply asking the crippled man what he wills in this situation. And of course, again, as I said, the man starts telling Jesus that he doesn't have any help. So Jesus responds to him by saying, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
Now, it certainly wasn't his faith. It certainly wasn't the crippled man's faith that did something in this situation. And the fact that Jesus sought for faith first and foremost indicates to me that he's not expecting there to be a, uh, a moved, organized, and instituted, initiated by God. If so, why would he have asked him? But that's what happens. After the man declares that he doesn't have faith to be healed, Jesus, just simply acting on the mercy of God, says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, I think one reason that God showed mercy on this man is because of his defense of Jesus, even before he knew who he was. We just read there as the latter part of the story how that Jesus had conveyed himself away when the Jews asked the crippled man, why are you breaking the, uh, the law of Moses on the Sabbath day by carrying your bed? He simply asked, answers the religious leaders and says, the guy that healed me told me to carry it away, so I'm carrying it. They wanted to know who it was, and the guy did not know. So, folks, that does away with any ideas that we might have that Jesus did the healing works or miracles or performed mighty acts of power, of uh, exercising God's power to show who he was. That would have been the perfect place for Jesus to stop and preach a sermon and tell everybody that he was the son of God. But that's not what he did. Jesus didn't even let the guy know who he was. So what's the important thing here from God's standpoint? I would have to conclude that it's mercy toward the man that was impotent or crippled. The only thing that mattered here as far as God was concerned is to show mercy upon the man that didn't have faith to receive. To show mercy. Then Jesus comes back to him and tells him, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. That's an interesting thing for Jesus to say in this case. Let me find it. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come, upon, come unto thee. Now, the man's been crippled for 38 years. Does that mean, does Jesus saying, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come on you, does that mean that the man's individual sin 38 some odd years earlier was the reason why he was crippled? We don't know. There's nothing to indicate that this man was born this way. There's nothing to indicate to us that some sickness or some disease, crippling disease, came upon him. We just don't know. But Jesus makes a statement. He says, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Jesus could either be saying, your sin brought this on you. Don't let it bring it on you again. Or he could just simply be saying and pointing out that sin is the cause of all sickness and disease. He may not be saying to this man, your sin caused your paralysis or caused you to be crippled. He may simply be saying, operate according to the law of Moses regarding forgiveness of sin so that sickness has no place in your life or to return to your body. We don't know really which one it is. So what are we to gain from this story? Why did the Holy Ghost give us this story, this record? It's the only one. He's the only gospel writer. Talking about John, he's the only one that gives us this account. Now, as I said, many of the healing events or individuals that were healed in Jesus' ministry are recounted in Matthew and Mark and Luke, or sometimes Matthew and Luke, or whatever the case might be. 
But this is one that's unique to John. Unique to the gospel that John wrote. As we've said before, John wrote his gospel many, many years after the others. As many as 60 years later than the earliest one that was written. The others 40 and 50 years plus. So John seems to be tying up loose ends. He seems to be operating by the Holy Ghost to give us record of things that the other gospel writers didn't tell us. And who would be in a better position for that than John? John was an eyewitness. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. And so knowing the things that Matthew has written and the account that Matthew gave of Jesus' healing ministry, knowing the account that Mark wrote, giving an account of Jesus' healing ministry, knowing what Luke wrote, and John knew all these people. He knew how close they were. In Matthew's case, he was one of the 12. Not so in Mark's case. Mark is probably the John Mark that's uh, Paul's nephew. Luke was one of the disciples as well, so he has firsthand eyewitness testimony. But John tells us something that the others don't tell us. What point to the story is there if it's not to show us that God's mercy will even go beyond your faith? God's mercy will go even beyond your faith. God loves us so much. God loved this crippled man so much that he was willing to go beyond his lack of faith. Only thing the man had to say was trouble. Here's the reason why I can't get healed. And God was bigger for him than that. In Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Well, if you're full of something, there's no room for anything else, is there? He says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Thank God he's great in mercy. Verse 9 goes on to say, The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all. Of his works. Now turn with me over to John chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse 35. This, uh, we're going to pick up the um, reading in the middle of something that's going on. The whole sixth chapter of John is a, is a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry because it's a point where a lot of people turn away from him. He's talking about drinking his flesh or drinking his blood and, and eating of his flesh, which is just an illustration, a type that he fulfills of the Old Testament Passover. They were supposed to apply the blood. You remember the first Passover was to apply the blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death would see that the, uh, the angel of death would not enter that house. And then they were supposed to eat the flesh of the lamb, the roasted flesh of the lamb, for the strength of their journey. The Bible says that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, and you remember that uh, the angel of death in the Passover, initial Passover time or event was the last of the ten plagues before Pharaoh sent Israel away from the land of Egypt. So they were, the Bible says that God led them forth with silver and gold and there was not one sick or feeble person among them. A real good case could be made that they received healing no matter how many people there were in the crowd and most estimates are two to seven million. So of those two to seven million people, you would not expect them to be at the best of health because they've been enslaved for, 40 year, for 400 years. Well, then how did he lead them forth 
with silver and gold and not one person, not one people among them. A good case can be made that they were healed through the Passover. There are two other occasions in the Old Testament where Israel was healed. Physical healing came to them through the keeping of the Passover. So there's a good case could be made that the fulfilling of the Passover or the, the uh, Jesus fulfilled the Passover, and that's what he's talking about here in John chapter 6. But the, a good case could be made that the original healing came on the first Passover ritual that God instituted. So in chapter 6, people are having to decide whether or not they're going to be offended by things that they don't understand and leave Jesus or stay with him even though they don't understand. Most left. So it's picking it up in verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So that tells us, therefore, that everybody that Jesus healed, he healed because it was the will of God for them to be healed. But here's the really important question. To whom did Jesus deny healing during his three years of ministry here on the earth? Did he ever tell anybody that healing wasn't God's plan for them? Did he ever tell anybody that healing was not the will of God for their life? No. Now, there are people we have record of that weren't healed when Jesus was here. You may remember in Nazareth, where Jesus went, Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to his own, own hometown of Nazareth. And he told them what he was sent from heaven to do. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He tells them that he's anointed to heal and deliver people. He tells everybody in the synagogue, but they won't accept it. They said, who is this man that speaketh these things? We know him. He grew up here in this town. How is it that he says that he's the one, the Messiah, that these scriptures are speaking to? You may remember that Jesus, after he finished reading from Isaiah, what we know of as Isaiah 61, he gave the book or the scrolls back to the, the rabbi of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue. And he sat down and said, this day is, are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. No mistaking on anybody's part, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. No doubt whatsoever. When he says these scriptures, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears, he knows that they know that these are scriptures that only pertain to the Messiah the sacrifice and the Savior for all of mankind. But because they wouldn't receive him, because they wouldn't accept what he had to say, they wouldn't believe him. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, And Jesus there in Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty works. Savior except he laid his hands on a few folks with minor ailments and healed them. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. In fact, he's just preached to them that it's God's will for everybody to be healed. He's just preached to them or read to them and explains or tries to explain to the, the crowd, the group in the synagogue. He explains to them that it's the will of God for healing and, and deliverance and freedom to be theirs. But they're the ones that rejected it. It wasn't God's will or it wasn't Jesus' will alone that mattered. God displayed his will by sending Jesus 
Jesus displayed God's will by saying, here's what I'm sent to do. But the people changed the situation by refusing to believe. Now, I know there's a, uh, a lot of folks in the modern day church that believe that whatever God's will is, that's going to happen no matter what. Well, that's certainly not what happened in Nazareth. It was the will of God for the people to be healed. That's evidenced by the fact that God sent Jesus. It was the will of Jesus for them to be healed as evidenced by the fact that he read from Isaiah 61 talking about the fact that he was anointed to heal and deliver. So whose decision was it that made the determining, that was the determining factor about whether healing would come to the city of Nazareth? It was the people's. It was the people's. With that in mind, it's no surprise to me why Jesus asked the man at the pool of Bethesda, will you be made whole? Because unless God undertakes in some miraculous way, in some outstanding gift of mercy, if this man, just like any man, had not exercised his faith or didn't have the faith to receive the healing that Jesus was sent to do, Jesus wasn't going to be able to do anything. But Jesus, finding no faith on the part of the individual, is moved by compassion. He's moved by mercies. God's tender mercies are over all of his works. Well, that would have to include the guy in John 5 then. Jesus, through his tender mercies, didn't leave the man in the situation that he found himself in. He extended his hand to heal. Now, let me ask you a question. A couple of questions, really. Is God trying to hide himself from mankind so that they can't discover him? That's certainly not what Jesus did. Jesus went about teaching, preaching in their synagogues, teaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and healing every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. Which shows us, again, Jesus said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. It shows us that since Jesus healed every manner of sickness and disease, every kind of sickness and disease, then healing from every kind of sickness and disease has to be the will of God. Or else Jesus was operating contrary to God's will, which would make him a sinner, which would mean he was not a worthy sacrifice for us. So it has to be true that it's God's will to heal every sickness and every disease. So where do we see the mercy of God shown in healing apart from the exercise of faith? There are very few cases, actually this and one other, in Jesus' earthly ministry where the mercy of God superseded somebody's unbelief. Only two places. So when Jesus asked this guy, will you be made whole? He's searching for faith. Now, why would God's mercy extend to somebody that didn't have faith to receive their healing here in Jerusalem, but not in Nazareth? Why didn't Jesus, after reading from Isaiah 61, handing the scrolls back to the leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, why didn't Jesus sit down and say, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. No matter what you think about it, no matter what you believe, we're going to have a healing revival right now. We're going to have a miracle service right now. Why didn't he do that? Why was the mercy of God not extended into Nazareth in the same way that it was to the man at the pool of Bethesda? 
Anybody got an answer for that? I certainly don't. It's way above my pay grade. The reality is the Holy Ghost manifests himself as he wills. Not as I will. Not as you will. But as he wills. And remember some of the manifestations of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Ghost, that are written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It identifies working of miracles. Well, healing of a crippled man would certainly be working of miracles. It identifies gifts of healings. There are, there are a plurality of gifts because of the plurality. I'll get it out in a minute. Because of the many, many different sicknesses and diseases. But this story shows us as great as God's mercy is, we see other stories compared to this one to realize that we can't always count on the mercy of God to heal somebody in unbelief. Jesus took a much stronger position with his disciples when it came to upbraiding them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. He took a lot bigger, a lot stronger position against his disciples than he did anybody else. Now, don't get me wrong. He railed on the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, because they would not accept the scriptures. But where the disciples were concerned, they didn't have the formal training or the education that the, the scribes and the Pharisees had. He couldn't hold them responsible for information that they didn't have or education that they didn't receive. His position with his disciples were that they didn't believe the things that he told them. You may remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus at one point plainly began to explain to his disciples how he was going to Jerusalem the following week. He would be taken captive and killed, but he would be risen. He would rise again after three days. The Bible says that he clearly taught that to his disciples. But when he was raised from the dead, not all of them believed. And the Bible tells us that he upbraided them, chastised them in other words, for their unbelief. Because God expects something more of those who, who choose to walk in close fellowship with him than those who do not. Now that looks unfair to us in some cases. It looks unfair that he would provide the mercy of healing to usurp or to countermand the lack, of un, the lack of faith or the unbelief of people like this guy in John chapter 5. Why does he demand more of his children than he does the world? We'd like to think that it should work the other way around, wouldn't we? We'd like to think that because we're children of God, God would just indiscriminately pour out his mercy, whether it's in the area of healing or finances or whatever, any area, because we're children of God. But folks, because we're children of God, he expects more of us. He expects us to understand and to learn from our experience of walking with him forever, how long we've been walking with him, to find that he's faithful, to find that he's faithful to watch over his word, the word of healing as well as every other area that the word covers. He expects more of us, not as a punishment, but as a blessing. Because it is more blessed to stand in faith and find God's faithfulness than for God to just indiscriminately pour out something upon you for you to enjoy.
See, people that only operate according to the things that God initiates on his own, they never wind up growing in their, their Christian walk. They never wind up growing in faith. They never find the faithfulness of God. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me after healing school, usually, but it's been other times as well. But it's a common occurrence for people to come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, not a part of the church, not people that, that usually come, but they'll come once, they'll visit once, maybe twice, and then they'll say, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for my healing. So I always ask them, what's the, what's the problem? What do they need to be healed from or healed of? And they'll tell me, they'll tell what the story is, and usually they'll go into long, drawn-out details about what the doctor said and all this other kind of stuff. And then they'll add this in. They'll say, now, I know God wants to heal me because there was one other, one other time in my life, many years ago, 20 years ago or some long period, there was another time in my life when God healed me of such and such a situation. It's not usually the same one that's come back on them. But their faith is in the fact that God in his mercy, not because they reached out in faith, but because God in his mercy touched their body with his healing power and raised them up. And so then in their thinking, all we have to do is wait for God to come through again. But it's a very rare thing that the same thing will happen twice. God's willing to show his mercy to us in order to, uh, to give us an incentive provide an incentive for us to walk with him, to learn his word, and to grow in faith. And I've seen so many people go down like that. And when I try to tell them, they usually don't want to hear that. They want to go on thinking that just like God showed forth his healing mercy once before through no faith, no effort on their own, that that's the way that healing's going to come to them again. And it rarely ever does. It rarely ever does. Folks, one of the most blessed things that we can experience in life is to find God's faithfulness to honor his word, whether it's in the area of healing or any other area. God's word is true. And when the Bible talks about it in several places, both Peter and Paul wrote about it, when the Bible says that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold, God really means that to be true. What that means is, let's try to put some other words on it to help people understand. What that means is, it's better to learn the faithfulness of God through adversity. That God is faithful to honor his word and come through with, with the answer, just like the word says. It's better for us to learn that through standing in faith than it is to get whatever blessing, healing or otherwise, poured out upon us in a moment of time. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody wants the instant thing. Everybody does. And that's understandable. Why wouldn't we? But you know, there comes a point in time, as parents, we have to say no to our kids. Not because we want to deprive them of anything, but because it might not be in their best interest. But kids don't know that. Kids don't care about that. Kids just want what they want. And they want God to meet their need or God to provide the answer to whatever their desire is. And in many cases, that would be detrimental for them. Now, we've got a number of cases where Jesus helped people's faith out. Remember the guy that brought Jesus 
brought his son to Jesus. And Jesus wasn't there at the time. The Bible says he and James and John, Peter, James, and John, were at the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they came back to where the other uh, apostles or disciples were, there was a big crowd and a lot of noise going on and stuff. And so Jesus finds out what it's all about. The Father says, I brought my son to your disciples that they should cast the devil out of him. And they couldn't do it. One translation says they tried and failed. And so Jesus says, how long must I suffer you? Bring your son to me. Jesus is upset. We don't know who he's upset at yet. But Jesus is upset that it didn't work the way that it's supposed to work. Now, prior to that point in time, Jesus had given his disciples authority to cast out devils and to heal the sick. So it should have worked. So the father brings his son to Jesus. At the moment that the evil spirit that's in the boy is face to face with Jesus, it says that he threw him to the ground and tore him. He had some kind of seizure type thing, or I guess that's what we would describe it as. And Jesus said, asked the father, he said, how long is it ago that this happened or first started happening? And the father answered, he said, it's been this way since he was a little child. He said, oftentimes this evil presence, this evil spirit will cast him into the water or cast him into the fire, trying to destroy his life. But then he says this, then the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. And Jesus turns it right around on him. He says, if I can. Now, the King James doesn't identify sarcasm very well. But the words in the Greek, the original Greek, are just that. Jesus sarcastically says to the guy, if I can. In other words, Jesus is trying to show him, the Father, and the Holy Ghost gives us a record of it, to identify that it's not just about God's power. Now let me take another side journey and remind you of some things we said a few minutes ago. In Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, it was not about what God could do. Jesus identifies what God wants to do and what God sent him to Nazareth as well as every other city, sent him to the earth, really, to accomplish. He anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. In other words, he doesn't want the poor to stay poor. He anointed him to heal the brokenhearted. This word brokenhearted doesn't have anything to do with emotions. It's talking about a breach in spirit. See, sickness came upon mankind because of the breach in spirit that occurred when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. So when it says he anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, he means those that have been affected by sickness and disease because of the spiritual death that came on mankind because of Adam's sin and failure. So he says, I'm anointed to heal the brokenhearted. That means to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. He said he sent me to preach deliverance to the captives. So God does not want captives to stay captive. He said and he anointed me to preach recovering of sight to the blind. So God doesn't want the blind to stay blind. He said, God has anointed me and sent me to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is the year of jubilee. It's when everything is restored back to its original possession. That's a sign or a type of healing as well as anything and everything else we lost through a man's fall in the garden. 
So when the man says to Jesus, the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. Jesus very clearly is identifying through the words that he uses and the answer that he gave the guy. He says, if I can, he's saying it's not a matter of what I can do. Then he says, all things are possible to him that believes. So if the issue is not God's power, what is the issue? Faith. Jesus is very simply telling the guy, the power of God is unlimited if you can believe. Don't focus on the power. God's got that part covered. The focus should be on our faith. And the father answers and he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like a rising, arousing confession of faith to me, does it you? I would suggest that you don't use that one with God in your prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But he says something. At least he says something that gets Jesus, gives Jesus an opportunity to work with it. When the father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you can see where his struggle is. He wants to believe. He's trying to believe. And that's enough for Jesus to cast the devil out of his son. Many times people look at faith as this hard thing, and there is a fight to faith. No question about that. There's a battle that the devil will engage you in to try to make you doubt, to try to make you speak against God's word, to take a position perhaps where you'd say, well, I see that healing is supposed to be provided for everybody, but it's not working for me, so I guess the word's not true. That's Satan's ultimate goal, is to get you to turn away from the truth of the word, the word that cannot fail, the word that cannot fail to come to pass to those that will hold on to it. The devil's number one job and his only job against you and me is to try to make us turn loose of the truth of the word of God for ourselves. So we could say this accurately. The thing the devil is concerned with is your faith. And isn't that where he always attacks us? He either tells us we don't have enough faith or he tells us we're unworthy to receive in some way or another. And that's still an attack on faith. See, the Bible says faith begins where the will of God is known. The Bible also says that our heart will, if our heart condemns us not, then we know that we have the answers that we ask for. So he wants to try to bring condemnation. He wants you to question your ability to take hold of and receive what God said is yours. Literally what Jesus paid for. But if Jesus is able to help the father of this little boy after a pretty weak confession, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If he's able to help him, then faith cannot be this hard, complicated thing that only a select few will ever enter into. It really comes down to this. There are two sides to every issue, two positions, two places concerning every issue that there is. One is on God's side as identified by what his word says. And the other is on the outside 
where people take sides against God's word. And the devil doesn't care why you take sides against God's word. It doesn't matter to him a lick. It doesn't matter to him if it's because you feel unworthy. It doesn't matter to him if it's because you feel like you're unable to stand in faith. He doesn't care why. He just cares about your faith. Because Jesus said so clearly, all things are possible to him that believes. That's what he told the father of this little boy that came to him or that was brought to Jesus. The story's in Mark chapter 9, and Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. It's not a matter of what God can do. God's power is unlimited. No point in ever questioning that. The only question is, what can we believe? There's nothing that thrills a parent's heart more than seeing their children grow in their relationship with God and use their faith to receive for themselves. If we feel that way about our kids, how do you think God feels about us? See, God's not interested in trying to make things tough for us. But instead, he's trying to show us that no matter what the devil throws at us, no matter how severe or how long it takes, his word always works. And when we see in our children that strength of faith, that unwillingness to bend or yield to the work of the enemy, nothing makes a parent more happy than that. Well, let me say it this way. Nothing makes a parent who knows God for themselves happier than that. Well, that's just being a good father or a good mother, isn't it? The Bible says how much more is God a good father than we are? So the fight of faith can always be won. No matter where you step into it, no matter how far along something is, the fight of faith, the good fight that the Bible tells us to fight, it's not a fight against other people. It's not a fight over doctrine or beliefs. It's just simply the fight that takes place when the devil's trying to make you turn loose of what the word says. But where we stand, unbending, unbroken, and refusing to yield. That's the kind of faith that makes God happy. Remember Mark chapter 8? I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 8 where it tells us about the centurion. The centurion's servant was sick. And he sends word to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him. The centurion said, there's no need to come to my house. He said, I understand how authority works. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Now here's a guy that's not even under the covenant of Abraham. This is a Roman soldier. But this Roman soldier understands how authority works. He understands that faith as well as authority work through the spoken word. So all he needs, all he requires of Jesus is just to say the word of healing and his servant will be healed. That's all he needs. And Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. He said, I've not seen so great a faith, no, not in Israel. Well, that indicates to me that Jesus was proud of it. Doesn't it you? And what made Jesus proud of this guy that wasn't even of the line of, uh, or descendants of Abraham? He wasn't even a part of the covenant that God made through Abraham. What was it that made this guy great in faith and brought happiness or made Jesus proud of him? 
He was willing to operate just on the word of God. That's all it took for him. He didn't need a show. He didn't need a display. He didn't need to see the power of God come like a lightning flash or any other way. He said, speak the word only. That's the place that makes us a favorite of God. When we stand up and say, the word's enough for me. And folks, the word is always enough if we're willing to hold on to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be strong in faith, unbending, unbreakable, unyielding. We thank you that you sent your word for a specific purpose. You sent scriptures concerning healing. You told us the example, showed us the example of Jesus' healing ministry when he was here on the earth for one and only one reason, and that is so that we would know how to receive healing for ourselves. Father, we choose to believe. We're not exactly in the same position as the centurion because he needed Jesus to speak the word and he was willing to take that by itself. But for us, the word's already been spoken. For us, the work of Jesus and his sacrifice for sin and sickness has already been paid. So there's nothing left for us to do but rejoice because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. So, Father, we worship you. We magnify you. We thank you that healing is ours. We thank you that nothing's too hard for you. And no matter what has been diagnosed in our bodies, no matter how severe it is, no matter how long it's been there, we thank you that simple faith in your word manifests, brings into being, makes to come to pass restoration and health for our bodies. We thank you, Father, that there is no power in hell or on the earth that can stop the healing virtue that resides within us because we're children of God. We thank you, therefore, Father, that the Holy Ghost, the life of God in us, quickens our mortal bodies. Thank you, Lord, for showing yourself faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.